This is Partners in Practice, a weekly series dedicated to the evolving field of the advanced practice clinician. Partners in Practice is produced this week in cooperation with the Association of Family Practice Physician Assistants, offering three annual CME conferences for PAs and NPs at family-friendly destinations nationwide. Now, here is your host, Physician Assistant Lisa DeAndre Linnell. Over 3.8 million people in the United States have triglyceride levels of 500 milligrams per deciliter or higher. What do we need to know to detect and manage patients with high triglycerides? And how can we better educate and inspire our patients to succeed with the diet and lifestyle changes they need to lower their triglyceride levels, improve their health, and decrease their risk factors? Here today to help us better understand hypertriglyceridemia is physician assistant Wynn Park. Wynn is a cardiology PA as well as a clinical assistant professor in the physician assistant program at Wayne State University. Hi, Wynn. Welcome to Partners in Practice. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for having me. When a day doesn't go by in primary care without a conversation with a patient about high triglycerides. What is hypertriglyceridemia and why is it important? Well, the National Cholesterol Education Program classifies high triglycerides as any levels above or equal to 150 milligrams per deciliter. And it's important to manage because we can help to reduce the risk of coronary atherosclerosis and vascular events. But in general, it's just good practice to make sure that we're managing all aspects of their cholesterol levels. What causes hypertriglyceridemia? Well, we have primary and secondary causes of hypertriglyceridemia. Primary causes are genetic, and there are many different kinds of genetic abnormalities. And then the secondary causes are things like pregnancy, fatty liver disease. There may be metabolic dysfunction in terms of insulin resistance. Being overweight can contribute to hypertriglyceridemia as well. It's important to classify patients' actual lipid disorder. So what physical exam findings are we looking for, and what labs should be ordered? When it comes to physical exam findings, it is helpful to look for eruptive xanthomas, palmar and tuberous xanthomas, because those physical exam findings will help us to determine exactly what type of lipid disorder that they have. And these usually are related to the primary causes, more of the genetic abnormalities that can lead to lipid disorders. In terms of the labs that we should order, as a cardiology PA, I order just a standard fasting lipid profile because I can get most of my clues about what kind of lipid disorder they have just on their physical exam and the fasting lipid profile. And what questions should we be asking the patients if we're evaluating them for hypertriglyceridemia? Well, definitely we can't ignore family history because of the primary causes, as I spoke of. But we can't also ignore the lifestyle issues. In terms of hypertriglyceridemia, the intake of alcohol can play a role. We need to be asking them about their carbohydrate intake and their exercise levels. The other thing you should ask for is any history of pancreatitis. Those are the main questions. The main things that most PAs would be asking about in general, but don't ignore the intake of alcohol. We often find patients coming in the office to discuss this, and they've not been fasting. Do we need them to come back fasting, or are there other test options that we can consider? Well, if for some reason patients come in and they're not fasting, or if they come in and they've had labs drawn previously and the labs are not fasting, really the first thing to do is to take a look at the labs if they come in with that scenario where they come in with labs. Look at the labs, and if they're normal and they're not fasting, you probably don't have to worry about it. 
However, if you have the opportunity to have them come back or to retest with fasting lipid profile values, those are always going to be more accurate and they're always going to give us better information. The triglyceride levels are the most affected by not fasting. What about patients with known hypertriglyceridemia? Should we be doing any other testing? Definitely. In patients with known hypertriglyceridemia, you want to be checking a direct LDL because frequently in patients with severe hypertriglyceridemia, you will not be able to calculate an LDL, and that's helpful in terms of determining their cardiac risk factor. We should also be checking sodium, amylase, and LDL levels because elevated triglyceride levels can lead to pseudohyponatremia. We want to be checking things like thyroid function, insulin resistance, because those are known secondary causes of hypertriglyceridemia. And if we can catch those, we can reverse the hypertriglyceridemia. All right, so we've diagnosed the patient with hypertriglyceridemia. How do we know if it's diet, if it's lifestyle, or if it's genetic? Most of that will come from your physical exam and from a very careful history. If you take a careful history from the patient, you should be able to determine if it is diet or lifestyle. And if you come to the patient with the attitude that you're working with the patient and you have a trust between you and the patient, then they will have that relationship with you and be able to be honest with you and tell you, yes, I'm drinking 10 beers a night or I have a bag of potato chips every night. And so those kinds of questions are things that they need to be able to trust you with, and then they'll be able to give you an honest answer. Let's talk about some treatment recommendations. What are the recommendations for borderline hypertriglyceridemia? Well, for borderline hypertriglyceridemia, and borderline is anywhere between 150 and 199 according to the NCEP ATP3 guidelines, we would recommend dietary changes including decreasing their weight, increasing exercise. Most of them are therapeutic lifestyle changes. And what about severe hypertriglyceridemia? Severe hypertriglyceridemia is defined as triglyceride levels above 500 milligrams per deciliter. Those patients, according to the NCEP ATP3 guidelines, should be on fish oil therapy. They recommend prescription omega-3 fatty acids. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Partners in Practice on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm PA Lisa DeAndre Linnell, and I'm speaking with physician assistant Wynne Park, clinical associate professor in the physician assistant program at Wayne State University and a cardiology PA, and we're discussing hypertriglyceridemia. So, when what should we consider when deciding to add omega-3 fatty acids as an adjunct to diet and lifestyle changes for our patients? Definitely, you should consider whether or not they have prescription coverage, how compliant they will be, and you should definitely explain to them some of the side effects that are common with fish oil so that they're prepared for eructation. A lot of patients will complain of kind of a fishy taste. And that's the most common side effect. And if patients are prepared for that and you can give them tips on how to avoid that, then you're more likely to have better compliance. Well, why prescription versus over-the-counter fish oil? It's not absolutely necessary to use prescription versus generic. But when it comes to convenience, patients are more likely to benefit from prescription and more likely to be compliant with prescription if they can afford it then they will be with generic. The cause of that is because we look at EPA and DHA levels 
within the fish oil tablets. That's really what we're looking for, the omega-3 fatty acids within these capsules. In generic tablets, the amount of EPA and DHA can vary. So it's very important for patients to be looking at the bottles, looking at the actual amounts of EPA and DHA. And it can be confusing for them because sometimes instead of the EPA and DHA levels, they'll be looking at the amount of fish oil within it. And that can be confusing for patients. What we recommend for patients who have severe hypertriglyceridemia, they need four grams daily of EPA and DHA, in order to get that level, they'll take four capsules of the prescription omega-3s. In some generics, in order to get that amount of EPA and DHA, it will take them 10 to 12 capsules. So you can see immediately, I have patients who don't want to take more than two pills a day, so to ask them to take four pills a day, which can be taken either, you know, four at one time or two twice daily, if you tell them that they'll need to take 10 to 12 fish oil capsules a day in order to reach the therapeutic levels, you know that they're not going to be taking them and they're not going to be compliant. So what if the patient prefers just to change their eating habits and make lifestyle changes versus any fish oil supplements? What would you recommend they eat? And is it possible to get enough EPA and DHA to make a difference in their triglyceride level? I don't think that it is possible, and part of the reason why it's very difficult is because a lot of our fish has mercury, and so in order to get the amount of fish and EPA and DHA levels that they need, they would have to be eating substantial amounts of fish per week, which may increase their mercury intake. What about weight gain and fish oil? Well, in our overweight and our obese patients, we have to be very careful. Again, when you look at prescription versus the generic, in our prescription omega-3 fatty acids, they're approximately 11 kilocalories per tablet, which comes out to 44 in a day. In patients who are taking generic, they can be taking up to 100 kilocalories per day. Over a year, that's 36,500 calories per year. And so we have to be very careful that we're trying to lower their triglyceride levels without causing weight gain. Right. So now someone started therapeutic lifestyle change and they're taking their fish oil. How often should you monitor their lipid panel and what results are you looking for? Well, when we start anybody on any type of antihyperlipidemic therapy, in our office, we recheck them every six to eight weeks to begin with. And then after that, it's every three to six months. We expect that by six to eight weeks and then at the three-month level that their triglyceride levels will have dropped by 50%. This is commonly seen in the studies that have been done with prescription omega-3s, and this is more commonly seen in patients who have severe hypertriglyceridemia, which would be the only reason you would be recommending the omega-3 therapy in the first place. If you don't see a significant drop, we then recommend stopping therapy. And then what? What's the next step? Well, in most cases, you will see a drop, but if we don't see it, then we have nicotinic acid. A recent study in JAMA came out about fibrates, um, and there's no difference in terms of decreasing cardiovascular risk with fibrates, although you may, you may see the drop in the triglyceride levels. So eventually, it all comes down to what we tell all patients anyway, which is therapeutic lifestyle changes, and those are as we said before, decreasing your weight, following a heart-healthy diet, and increasing your exercise. What are some of your pearls on managing the side effects of fish oil? Well, one of the pearls in our office 
we recommend that patients freeze their fish oil tablets. That not only helps to prolong the lifespan of the fish oil tablets, but there's less eructation with freezing the tablets, according to what patients have told us. Should you avoid fish oil in patients who are taking anticoagulants or have liver disease? It really depends on what type of liver disease that they have. We don't avoid fish oil in our patients taking anticoagulants, but we do continue to monitor INR levels, AST and ALT levels periodically because omega-3 fatty acid intake can increase the ALT without increasing AST. So when how important is it for PAs to understand lipid and triglyceride metabolism? I really think it's important for PAs to understand lipid and triglyceride metabolism because it's an integral part of explaining to the patient how they can lower their triglycerides. If the patients themselves don't understand how triglyceride metabolism occurs, they are less likely to be compliant with the therapy that you're recommending. And in closing, when where can our listeners get more information about hypertriglyceridemia? I would recommend the American Heart Association website. Also, the National Cholesterol Education Program has a lot of information about hypertriglyceridemia. Wynn, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. We've been talking with Wynn Park, who has updated us on the best practices for the treatment of hypertriglyceridemia. You've been listening to Partners in Practice on ReachMD XM160. Partners in Practice has been produced this week in cooperation with the Association of Family Practice Physician Assistants, offering three annual CME conferences for PAs and NPs at family-friendly destinations nationwide. You can download this program or any other program at our library at ReachMD.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening.